Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, Judy Dench is a retired scientist accused of spying for the Russians. He cared for the ordinary man. We'd seen the Jarrow marches pass through the town, but I, socialists, no. So, who politicised you, then? It's a peculiar way of putting it. Hugh Jackman is a Victorian explorer who is discovered by a Sasquatch. Oh, well, you, you really mean that? You're going to take me? Of course. I give you my word. OK, what is it? What? Your word. No, it's a figure of speech. Sounds good. What is it? And against all the odds, conservative governments from New Zealand and Australia bring peace to Bougainville with guitars and God instead of guns. The Maori concert group and a good shipment of guitars are going to be the main weapons in our arsenal. This week, all our films have something political going on. It's rare outside of film festivals, Michael Moore documentaries or Ken Loach to have directly political observations in our cinemas. And this week's movies all managed to bury or suppress the politics that are clearly there in their subject matter in favour of those old standbys, character and plot. Red Joan, the film that you'd think would have the best chance to voice an argument, disappointingly shies away from it. The animated family movie Missing Link relegates its political opinions to the background and Soldiers Without Guns tells a story of what can happen when political disputes turn toxic but prioritises the feel-good aspects of the solution over the political ones. In these highly charged partisan times, I can imagine that producers and studios would try and avoid taking positions that might alienate half or more of an audience. That's just understandable. But hinting at an opinion, reducing it to subtext or ignoring it altogether feels to me like a missed opportunity. I am not a spy. You moved to Russia, Mr. I don't believe in working against one's country. I wanted the Russians to be on an equal footing with the West. I'm not a traitor. I wanted everyone to share the same knowledge because... How much did the Russians pay you? Because only that way could the horror of another world war be averted. And I think if you look back at history, you'll see I was right. How many films can you remember whose titles start with the word red? 
Recently, there was the Jennifer Lawrence secret agent thriller Red Sparrow. Andrea Arnold's superb debut film in 2006 was called Red Road. John Wayne and Montgomery Clift starred in Red River back in 1948. That's a classic. Antonioni's Red Desert was an early art house favourite in 1964. Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen fought off the USSR in Red Dawn. And a year later, in 1985, Brigitte Nielsen took on Arnold Schwarzenegger in the sword and sandals epic Red Sonja. Now we have a new Red to contend with, and I'm sorry to report that it's not nearly as exciting as any of those others. Red Joan is a rather pedestrian story about a retired British physicist played by the venerable Judy Dench who is arrested for sending nuclear secrets to the Russians after the end of World War II. Ms Dench doesn't have a huge amount to do in this film despite what the poster might lead you to believe and most of the heavy lifting, such as it is, is done by up-and-coming young English actress Sophie Cookson. The film starts with Joan's arrest and the first part of her interrogation. She doesn't need a lawyer, she protests, because she's done nothing wrong. In flashback, we meet Miss Cookson as the young Joan, a talented scientist studying at Cambridge in 1938. The storm clouds of fascism are gathering over Europe, but she's more interested in physics. One night, a beautiful émigré student named Sonia, played by Teresa Srobova, climbs in her bedroom window after a jolly night out. The exciting and slightly exotic Sonia turns Joan's head a little bit and she's soon going along with her to lefty events like watching Battleship Potemkin in respectful silence and being introduced to bright young things like future head of the Foreign Office Sir William Mitchell and handsome German-Jewish refugee Leo Galich, played by Prince Albert from the Victoria TV series Tom Hughes. Tell me if all of this whole world was going to be destroyed, what would you save? The pyramids. The Eiffel Tower, perhaps. Why those things? Why any of them? Maybe it's a chance to rebuild civilization from scratch. Completely new way. My little comrade. World War II soon breaks out, and the Russians start out on the side of the Nazis, which puts those European emigres on the left in the security spotlight. Leo is arrested and interned. Sonia mysteriously disappears to Switzerland. Joan's scientific talents are soon spotted by the government and she's put to work on the British version of the Manhattan Project, trying to unlock the secrets of the atom so they can make a war-ending bomb. There are actually some nicely observed bits in here as she goes from being a gifted secretary to the great men in the office to being a significant contributor in her own right. But then, on the boat to Canada to share research with the Allies, she falls in love with her boss, played by Stephen Campbell Moore, and the story is reduced to being about the competing men in her life. I did find all the blokes in this picture to be terribly wet. Maybe that's why I felt so unengaged with it. Meanwhile, back in the interrogation room, poor old Judy Dench is being rather browbeaten by Special Branch, and her top lawyer son, played by Ben Miles, is 
terribly disappointed with her, until, of course, he isn't. Can we wrap this up? We've been through all this. She's denied everything you've alleged. Passing Exhibit E to the accused. Do you recognise this? No. This report was produced by the Cambridge Division of Tube Alloys in 1945, just after the end of the war. It's classified material, yet somehow found its way into a KGB file in Moscow attributed to Agent Lotto. Who's Agent Lotto? We have this file from a recently defected Russian agent. What's it got to do with me? I think my main concern about Red Joan is that if you're going to be inspired by a true story, as it says at the beginning, why not be inspired to do something a bit more exciting? You're making most of it up anyway. Screenwriter Lindsay Shapiro has adapted the story from a real event and changed all the names, but left all the dullness in. Director Trevor Nunn, who used to be artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, so he knows a little bit about drama on stage, if not on screen, can't seem to mine any here. My other beef with Red Joan is something I alluded to earlier. It seems afraid of politics. Joan flirts with left-wing causes at Cambridge, but for romantic reasons rather than ideological ones. The Cambridge lefties are made to look like an easily manipulated upper-class social club singing the red flag at the drop of a hat, but not really believing in anything other than that fascism is bad. She's dragged into espionage because of the men in her life and ultimately commits her treason, for want of a better word, because she believes in nuclear parity, not socialist idealism. I just wish she had believed in a little bit more, to be honest, or that anybody in the film had. You are on a research trip. Mm hmm Did I ask? No. Jojo, I, I had to find you. No, I, I can't stop thinking about you. My little comrade. The bomb must be shared. The Russians, they deserve to know. And the, the Allies are going to do something dreadful with it. Do not be naive. Joan. I am sick of your poison kisses. Red Joan is rated M for some very inoffensive sex scenes and it's playing in selected cinemas all over New Zealand now. Oh, wow, well, you, you really mean that? You're going to take me? Of course. I give you my word. Okay, what is it? What? Your word. No, it's a figure of speech. Sounds good, what is it? The word, my dear fellow, is trust. Oh, so you want the poop now? Oh, later we'll be fine. Oregon film studio Leica Entertainment is one of the great independent success stories of the last 20 years. Of course, when you're owned by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, and are led by his son Travis, it's rather easier to maintain your independence than it would be for most other movie companies. 
Leica specializes in stop-motion animation, the technique where an animator moves a model an infinitesimal amount, snaps a still image, moves it again, takes another picture, etc., until, after you've done that 24 times, you have one second of screen time. It is ridiculously painstaking work, and the more characters you have on screen, the more models you have to move. Then, if you want to move the camera too, you've just added an almost incomprehensible extra layer of complexity to your situation. Leica are superb at it, and they've invented a huge amount of new technology to extend and enhance the old-fashioned work done by the animator's fingers. It's not that long ago that Ardman in Bristol were still modelling their characters in plasticine, so you could literally see the animator's fingerprints. More recently, Wes Anderson's wonderful Isle of Dogs in 2017 worked wonders with fur. But Leica's technology and craft is on another level, and if you've seen films of theirs like uh, Kubo and the Two Strings and The Box Trolls, you'll know what I'm talking about. Missing Link is their latest, and the first, it seems to me, to not have the comprehensive oversight of company head Travis Knight. He recently made his first live-action film, Bumblebee, which came out over the New Zealand summer, so his attention was divided. Knight is still credited as a producer on the picture, so I may be out of bounds in suggesting he didn't have his hands firmly on the wheel. But there's something about Missing Link that's... What's the word I'm struggling for? Missing. It's still there. Excuse me. I think I've got a little something stuck in my... There it is. In my throat. Like a nut or a, or a field mouse or something like that. I don't know. Am I rambling? I'm a little nervous, if I'm being honest. I... Sir Lionel Frost, I presume. Hi. Hugh Jackman is the voice of Sir Lionel Frost, an ambitious but frustrated Victorian adventurer in the mould of Jules Verne's Phineas Fogg from Around the World in 80 Days, a story this film owes something of a debt to. After failing to get a photographic record of the Loch Ness Monster, Frost is worried that he'll never be accepted into London's snooty scientific community. His luck changes with a letter all the way from the Pacific northwest of America, not uncoincidentally the home of the Leica studio itself. There have been sightings of a giant, lumbering, humanoid creature with very big feet. A Bigfoot, if you will. Frost seizes his chance and makes his way to Oregon where he meets the writer of the letter, who turns out to be a lonely Sasquatch with the voice of Zach Galifianakis. He has taught himself how to read and write so that he can enlist the great explorer to help him find a family. He's heard that there might be more like him in the Himalayas and wishes to journey there to meet them. Frost agrees to help and they set off together, through many superbly rendered physical sets inspired by great movies from the pre-World War II era. A western saloon, a Californian hacienda, a railroad car, steamship, an elephant ride through the British Raj. On the way, they pick up Zoe Saldana's Adelina Fortnight, a former paramour of Sir Lionel and owner of the only map that can get them close to the fabled Yeti. Meanwhile... 
Sir Lionel's great rival, Lord Piggott Dunsby, rather inevitably voiced by Stephen Fry, has set some paid goons on their trail in order to ensure their failure. Now, hold me tightly. Are you... are you sure? Um, Adelina's watching. What? No, no. I want you to throw me out of the pit. Uh, I don't know. I think it might be a little too heavy. Nonsense. Now, give it all you've got. Oh, it's hard to know whose fault that was. Let's do it again. For all the wondrous production design and creation, Missing Link falls short. Firstly, the story isn't quite strong enough to come out of the shadow of the aforementioned Monsieur Verne, and the humour is very tired indeed, leaving talents like Jackman and Galifianakis very little to work with. Studio comedies these days often benefit from highly paid script doctors who can punch up the laughs in a script, but I'm not sure that the bones of this one are strong enough to carry a better class of gag. And while there's a praiseworthy subtext throughout the film about blinkered westerners blundering through pristine habitat, upsetting delicately balanced First Nation cultures and unwittingly trailing environmental and cultural destruction in their wake, our hero's final engagement with the yetis of Shangri-La leaves something of a sour taste. A leader with the voice of Emma Thompson explains why their location must understandably remain a secret, yet they soon become villains and figures of fun, and their unwillingness to engage with the modern world undermines the film's main message. I must warn you, she does not like visitors. She's old and rude and prefers solitude. Moo! Also... Please do not, whatever you do, mention the chicken. The chicken? Yes, please. Never, ever mention the chicken. Of course not. We understand. No chicken, got it. Zip. Uh, greetings, venerable Gamu. It is an honor. What's with the chicken? Missing Link is rated PG for some cartoon violence and it's in multiplexes nationwide at least until the end of the school holidays. If your kids are young enough, it's possible that they have never heard all these jokes before and might get a kick out of it. Parents, however, will have to enjoy the sumptuous visuals instead. The Maori concert group and a good shipment of guitars are going to be the main weapons in our arsenal. <laughs> Sometimes my ability to forget important historical information is simply embarrassing, especially when you consider that I have an actual degree in history. For quite a long time now, I've conflated in my mind the 10-year Bougainville Civil War with the fight for independence in East Timor, despite the fact that they have very little in common with each other, apart from post-colonial fallout and indigenous misery. I must have been watching television news in 1997 when the New Zealand government led efforts to broker peace on the island, but I have no memory of it. Which is just one of the reasons why Will Watson's threadbare but vital documentary Soldiers Without Guns is such an important arrival on our screens. It's a minor miracle that it exists at all. In production for 12 years, it is the very definition of a labour of love. 
and it is an essential document in understanding not just recent Pacific history, but also to help see New Zealand culture in a new light. There's so much that I didn't know before this film. That Bougainville is closer to the Solomon Islands than it is to PNG, that it has been bounced around a bunch of different colonial powers, including Germany, Australia, Japan, and then Australia again, before being flicked off to the new nation of Papua New Guinea in 1975, while the Australians kept the riches for themselves in the form of the huge Panguna copper mine. The economic inequity and environmental disaster caused by that mine was the catalyst for unrest in the late 80s that in turn led to the bitter civil war. After 10 years, it took conservative politicians in New Zealand and Australia, a change of leadership in Port Moresby and the voices of the women of Bougainville to finally bring about a truce. The remarkably dry Brigadier Roger Mortlock then led a team of unarmed peacekeepers to Bougainville to monitor a ceasefire that had been negotiated at Burnham. I have no idea how transferable the lessons of the New Zealand-led truce monitoring group are. My suspicions are that they're not. Conflicts in the rest of the world are often more deeply embedded in history and ethnicity or have massive geopolitical roots and great international powers in the background stirring the pot. But I'd like to think that there are some lessons to be learnt for New Zealanders ourselves. That incorporating indigenous knowledge into modern frameworks can enhance those processes and deliver better, more local, more appropriate outcomes but for that to happen, we need to be prepared to open up to the learning that's required. The other lesson from the story that probably won't be taken up by leaders in conflict areas elsewhere is the clearest. Listen to the women. Give them a seat at the table and then let them lead. Women everywhere spoke the same language and they wanted the same thing. We wanted peace and stability for our children. We wanted guns to be laid down. We wanted disposal of arms. We wanted our sons' husbands who were in the jungle to come out and talk peace. They shamed almost these men to have the courage to sign that document, which for some could have been signing their death warrant. The downside of being a critic is that sometimes you have to be critical, even when you don't really feel like it. This is one of those occasions. Soldiers Without Guns is an unpolished gem. It's a bit rough around the edges. The footage, even the footage shot by Watson himself, is of varying ages and qualities, and some of the music cues seem a bit clunky. And the sequence where Watson introduces New Zealand into the equation might have been supplied by the New Zealand Tourist Board, it feels so out of place with the rest. But the film is essential viewing. I know I want to see it again. It's such a cogent telling of Bougainville's history, contextualising information in a way that perhaps even I won't forget it this time. This concept of Ngāti too about bringing cultures together, about recognising the values of each and not contradicting you but saying, here are the strengths, let's bring them together, let's fuse this whole new kaupapa. Soldiers Without Guns is rated M for war footage and content that may disturb, and frankly they're not kidding. For ten years it seemed like every young man on Bougainville had an assault rifle and a video camera. It's playing in limited locations and often limited sessions in selected cinemas across New Zealand now. I'd book early to avoid disappointment if I were you. Oh, what a mystery 
And that's our program for this week. I usually like to end the show with a sample from uh, the soundtrack of one of the films we've featured, but like the films themselves this week, pickings are slim. Here's the theme song from Laika's Missing Link, a cheerful little ditty called Do Dilly Do, A Friend Like You by Walter Martin, which is perfectly agreeable if you ignore the fact that it's a blatant rip-off of You've Got a Friend in Me from Toy Story. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Next week, we'll be featuring Avengers Endgame, and also the complete opposite, a documentary about nuns in California who are at the forefront of the medical marijuana industry. Please join me for all that and more at the same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.